Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Well, hello, I'm Janet Moreno, the Executive Director of Priests for Life. Well, today's topic, I think, is going to interest a lot of you. You know, some people are organ donors, which can be a good thing, but also it can have some drawbacks. And there's a term that gets kicked around a lot called uh, brain death. And there's some scary things that can happen when doctors are kind of telling patient family members that their loved one is brain dead. Are they really brain dead? How do we really know? What's the information we need? Well, joining me today is a very good friend of mine, a great leader in the pro-life movement, uh, Brad Mattis, and he is the president of Life Issues Institute. And recently he wrote a fabulous article giving some very startling facts about brain death. So Brad, welcome to the program. Thanks, Janet. It's always good to be with you. Great to have you. Well, of course, I think the the most famous uh, case that we both were very much involved in is uh, our, our dear sister in the Lord, Terry Schiavo, the, the whole world followed that case. And, uh, you know, Father Pavone actually was allowed, he was on the visitor list and he got to see Terry. And, you know, Brad, it just angered me the way they made it sound like she was in a persistent vegetative state, which you know she was not. Um, and Father Pavone, actually, when he went to visit Terry about, uh, oh, a couple of weeks before they took out her feeding tube and starved her to death, uh, he was in the room with her and her parents, Bob and Mary, and they were chatting. Do you know when Bob would tell a joke, Terry would smile? Now, that's not someone who's brain dead, right, who's smiling. And then Father, near the end of the visit, said, um, well, Terry, we'd like to pray right now before I leave and give you a blessing. So Father Frank put his hands on Terry's head. And when he put her hands on her head like this, what did Terry do? She closed her eyes, which as you, Brad, a lot of people will do that as a natural thing when someone's praying over them. And when Father said the amen he, and lifted his hands, she opened up her eyes again. So Brad, clear evidence, right? Was Terry Scheibel in a persistent vegetative state or brain dead? Absolutely, absolutely, right. absolutely clear evidence there. And for full disclosure, I serve as chairman of the board of the board of directors for the Terry Chevrolet and Hope Network. And uh, they're doing wonderful work to help people. But yeah, there are videos of Terry interacting with her mother and doing all sorts of things that you would not attribute to anybody who was brain dead, of course. What is such a travesty um, and we all recall the horrors of this process is that they ignored all that overwhelming evidence and killed her by withholding uh, food and, and hydration. So imagine a life and then death of being starved to death and dehydrated to death. It took about 13 days for Terry to die. And Bobby explained what she looked like and what she went through in those last days. And it was absolutely gruesome. Well, you know, Brad, it was gruesome because uh, Father Pavone and Bobby and um, and Suzanne uh, went in to see Terry, I would say within less than 10 minutes before she passed finally. And Father Frank describes it. He said her eyes were darting back and forth like furiously. 
as if to say, help me, help me, help me. And he said her lips were all cracked and parched. He said you could see that she was dehydrated and starved to death. And he said it was not a peaceful death because they left the room and Michael Shivo came in next, her, her husband, and his remarks after she passed to the press were, it was a peaceful death. Sorry, it was not a peaceful death. It was just like you said, Brett, it was a horrible death. But to help our audience a little bit now, because you did a great article about uh, brain death. What is the classic definition of brain death, would you say, according to what your research and what the medical profession is saying now? Yeah, and I'm going to read that for our viewers here. This uh, definition comes from the American Academy of Neurology, uh, very high academic credentials. And they wrote guidelines for brain death determination, and I'm quoting them. Many of the details of the clinical neurologic examination to determine brain death cannot be established by evidence-based methods. The detailed brain death evaluation protocol that follows is intended as a useful tool for clinicians. It must be emphasized that this guidance is opinion-based. Alternative protocols may be equally informative. So it just shows that uh, personal bias and interpretation of what's going on or an agenda should that patient be an organ donor, all plays into the effect of a brain death diagnosis, which has increased considerably in America. Uh, there are over 15,000 diagnoses of brain death in America in hospitals or hospice throughout the nation. Well, you know, I, I had a personal experience with this uh, with my mother-in-law. Um, she had suffered... Um, a bleed, bleeding in the brain by a fall and was hospitalized and she was improving. But then all of a sudden, apparently she suffered a stroke, you know, so then she, she, her whole, everything diminished and she was on life support and she stayed on life support for a number of days. And I remember one day we came into the ICU and the doctors were saying, well, you know, there's no brain activity. And so we're recommending that, you know, we shut all the machines off. And I, said no and they looked at me like i there was i was a crazy person and i said no i want another neurologist to come in and evaluate her and i have to talk to her priest clergy uh to see exactly what's going on i have to gather the family and we have to make a decision so the doctor went away and, and his assistant and I'm making all these calls and we're getting another opinion and doing all these things, Brad. And do you know about every half hour, the assistant to that doctor came in with a clipboard saying, are you ready to sign? And I would say, no, please leave. And they came in a half hour later. Are you ready to sign now? I said, no, please leave. And finally, I said, if you come in here one more time with that clipboard, I am going to call the head of this hospital and report you. Do not come back. When we want to sign the form, we'll let you know. And we didn't sign the form for a few more days because we we took like, um, what should I say, very precise steps. We asked for another evaluation from a different doctor. We had a clergy come, give her last rites, bless her. We called all the family members and let them all get there. Uh, in fact, my one daughter had to fly all the way from California 
and get in to see grandma. And so we kind of put the brakes on it. But if, if, if I wasn't there being so, oh no, get out, leave us alone, uh, they would have shut, they would have taken her off life support like, like that. And I know what you're talking about, Brad, it's pitiful, but tell us a little bit more about what you're finding now. Uh, like what is the protocol going on in hospitals where the number of people taking off life support is now increasing? Yeah. Well, one of the things that the uh, Journal of American Medical Association found out, they did a study and found, uh, they looked at over 500 hospitals and found that the hospitals had hugely, uh, uh, they found huge discrepancies in how hospitals determine brain death, which should send a chill up the spine of patients and their families. And um, what we also found out in a study by the Journal of American Medical Association just last year, they, they're beginning to catch on. And they said, the study concluded that decisions regarding the withdrawal of life sustaining treatment should not be made in the early days following a brain injury. And a significant proportion of the participants experience major improvements in life function with many regaining independence between two weeks and 12 months. And here is where I would like to show you some real life cases that back that up, Janet. Um, just two months ago, uh, Megan Marlowe was told that her husband was neurologic, had experienced a neurologic death, which is a fancy way of saying brain death. And since he was an organ donor, they said they would keep him on life support until they could locate recipients for his organs. And then what do you know, two days later, they called back to say that her husband had somehow miraculously come back to life. Well, he had never been brain dead to start with. And um, he was alive. Now, um, another one, Lewis Roberts was diagnosed with uh, brain death. And before his organs were harvested, he began breathing on his own. And now he was well enough to go home from the hospital and play sports. So this isn't just coming back with a partial recovery. This is a full and complete recovery. And then there's um, Taylor Hale, a high school student who, now this is a pretty severe case. She had a brain hemorrhage and part of her brain stem part of her brain slid into the spinal canal. And of course, you could understand if a doctor would say, that, you know, this is a very poor prognosis. But um, once they removed life support, she began to breathe on her own. And later she attended her own high school graduation. So we're talking about life and death decisions that should not be made because many of these patients have a lot of life to live. Um, here another one, Zach Dunlap was diagnosed brain dead. And uh, two months later, he walked out of the hospital. It is uh, just an absolutely appalling thing. And um, one more, Trenton McKinley had a severe brain injury, but a, a week later, his uh, doctor said he was brain dead and asked to harvest his organs. They agreed, uh, believing what the doctors told them, but the day uh, before they were to remove those organs, he began to move and uh, showed evidence 
that he was very much alive. Now, this young man has quite a journey to healing, but he's showing great promise. And see, here we have doctors who are using antiquated information, subjective information, and discriminatory attitudes to determine when life begins and when life ends. And the thing that's pushing all of this, Janet, is the industry of harvesting organs. And I have an authority I'd like to quote regarding that. Um, his name is Dr. Cicero Coimbra. He's a neurologist and professor of neuroscience. And he stated that in 2016 alone, organ pro procurement uh, business generated almost $25 billion. That's billion with a B. So we have to understand there's so much money around this. And see, when a hospital harvests those organs, they get a lot of money as a result. They're paid to harvest them. And then if they use those organs with patients within the facility, then they bill for all of that. So we're talking millions of dollars for hospitals should they declare a patient brain dead and then harvest their organs. Wow. Incredible. Well, you know, it takes me to the very beginning there where you, you gave that first definition and it wasn't like they do certain tests. And if the test results show this, that's brain death. Basically from that first definition, it sounded like it was a matter of opinion, like a doctor's opinion as to what was happening with their patient at that time. Well, I think they're giving every indication they're brain dead, right? Red? I mean, it's not like it was if you give this test and there's uh, no brainwave activity or there's no this, this and that, then that's officially brain death. But it sounds to me like it's too ambiguous, no? It's too subjective also. And as I pointed out, 500 uh, hospitals differ largely in their guidelines for determining brain death. And when you've got the money motivation and a lack of respect for innocent human life that we see in our nation today, uh, these patients are really have the deck stacked against them. And thankfully, your relative had you there uh, speaking up for her, her advocate. We need to make sure that everybody has that opportunity to have an advocate for them in the room who will guide the doctor process and decisions and not allow them to make a decision that prematurely ends that patient's life. Right. And you know, Brad, that's why uh, Father Frank and I for decades have told people not to sign these living wills where you're indicating your wishes ahead of time. Instead, uh, there's a thing called will to live and they var it varies in different states, but we have on our website, priestforlife.org slash will to live you can download the will to live for your state. And what it, it does is it you appoint your advocate. You appoint that person that if I can't speak, this person knows my wishes and will speak for me in those cases. And that, Brad, is so important uh, that everyone has that. They register it with their, their whosoever their general practitioner. Uh, if you have a family member in a nursing home, it's very, very, very important. In fact, my dad was in a nursing home for seven years and we had that advocate listed. 
And do you know, every time my father was taken to the emergency room, uh, somehow the, the nursing home would forget to put that paperwork with, you know, in the ambulance with him. And when we get to the hospital, we, we would walk in with our copy. And that's the thing I was going to say. The advocate has to have a copy. And we'd have to say, excuse me, here's his advanced directives. Because that's the other thing they do now, Brad. They literally walk in with clipboards in the ER to patients and saying, do you have a, a, a living will? If not, could you please sign this? Now imagine, you just were taken to a hospital in an ambulance, you're incoherent, and they're shoving a clipboard for you just to uh, sign advanced directives. It, it's the worst thing that's happening right now in our country. It really is, Brad. Well, and there's something on the horizon that I can't tell you about in detail at this point, but the Terry Shiva Life and Hope Network has uh, an amazing app coming down the road here that circumvents a lot of those problems you just described. And they will be announcing that very soon. And myself and my wife, we are so excited about this that um, we will certainly uh, be members of this app. Well, I'll tell you, Brad, I promise you when that's ready, I'll have you back and we'll walk everyone through how to download the app and how to use it. Because, you know, with the little experience I've had with family members, and I see the system, how it's so stacked against the patients, uh, because, like I said, and I always say this is because of uh, abortion and assisted suicide and euthanasia, which are on the march, by the way, in our country. Uh, you know, Canada is bad, but oh boy, here in the United States, they're pushing hard. And the problem is we're not valuing human life. You know, it's kind of, if you become inconvenient, uh, to society, suddenly it's okay to, to kind of get rid of you, whether it's an unborn baby or someone who has, was just in a car accident and suffered uh, some illness or just passed out suddenly and something happened. It's like, the, it's like oh, they're inconvenient. Let, let them go. It, it's terrible, isn't it, Brad, the, the, the whole thing? It is. And, and Janet, we're seeing another alarming trend with people on Medicare. Um, they are putting them in the hospital until the hospital can milk all of their benefits dry. And then they talk the patient into going into hospice, regardless of whether they're actively dying or not. And then there, we are seeing evidence that um, heavy doses of morphine and other drugs um, are given uh, supposedly to take care of pain when in many conditions there is no pain, but this slows respiration and gradually takes over and kills the patient prematurely. So we we off, we don't want to think that this is a possibility that money is driving all of this, but it is. And there's considerable evidence of that. So that's why I'm so glad you're doing this program and keeping your viewers up to date on such a critical issue of our time. Yeah. Well, let's talk about or organ donation, because to be honest, I never checked off, you know, and, and some people make you feel guilty. Oh, you wouldn't be generous and donate your organs. And one time I said to someone, I said, it's not a question of being generous. I don't want the angels of death taking me out before God wants to take me. I said, I'm going to leave this planet when the Lord Jesus says it's time, Janet, not before. And because I guess I'm like you, Brad, we kind of follow what's going on so much. I just said, no, there's a tendency to want to harvest people's organs. And I'm not going to check that box off on my driver's license that I could become a victim. So 
What can you say now about this whole organ donation? And, and what can people do if somehow, you know, at the time that they registered to get their driver's license, they thought they were doing a good thing and checked it off. Like, what can we do if you want to undo all that now? Well, I'm glad you brought that up. And when I got my driver's license uh, not too long ago, they asked me to be an organ donor. And I said, do you realize that for you to donate your heart, it has to be beating when they take it out of your body? And the woman there had absolutely no idea. So what we've done at our website at lifeissues.org, lifeissues.org, in the resource section, it's called Brain Death and Organ Donation. And we've researched every state. So if you're an organ donor in, say, uh, Michigan, and you want to get off that list, it's there's you need to take more steps than just having it off your driver's license because you are on record as being an organ donation don donor, and the hospitals will, will search that list and find you on it. So you have to make a step. It's not very hard, but you do have to make a step or two to contact a certain phone number or agency in each of your states. And we've provided all of that information for you. For all 50 states, we show you where you can go to uh, let them know that you need to be taken off that list once and for all if that is your desire and wishes. You know, Brad, what you just said, I find that very alarming, that in order to donate a heart for a heart transplant, the heart still has to be beating but if the heart is still beating, it means the patient's alive still, right? So, so how, I mean, to me, that's like scary. Like, how can that be that you take a person who's still alive and, and you're killing them literally to harvest their heart for, to give someone else life? I mean, isn't that what you're saying? Um, yes, I am saying that. And um, when I talk to doctors and press them, they say, well, of course the heart needs to be Feeding. And there needs to be circulation to successfully harvest the liver and uh, kidneys and lungs. Uh, that needs to be fresh tissue for it to be successful in transplant. And here's something new on the horizon. They're uh, actually withdrawing life support, letting the patient's heartbeat actually stop, but then put them back on life support, but clamp blood flow to the brain so that they can then say they're brain dead. And then while the heart is still beating, but uh, all oxygen, uh, oxygenated blood is blocked from reaching the brain, then they harvest those organs. And then after they're done, the patient dies by organ donation. Brad, I mean, I'm speechless. So, yeah. how, I mean, where can you find like, proof of how often this is happening? And is, is this somewhere written in a medical protocol that they're following this procedure? I mean, because well, to me, this is like an alarm going off. Yes, it is, but it's something new. Uh, there is evidence of this and we can provide you with links to show you that. There is some pushback in the medical community on this though. And um, so it's not unanimously accepted but uh, it is crossing the line clearly. They're causing the heartbeat to stop and preventing the brain from getting blood. It's, it's just Frankenstein all over again. You know, we've, we've just passed uh, Halloween, but 
This is more egregious than anything we could imagine for Halloween. Yeah, I mean, that's what, when it's funny, you said Frankenstein, I was thinking Frankenstein. I said, this sounds like Frankenstein kind of medicine and it's appalling. And you know, you know, when you think about it, someone getting a heart or a liver and say it's saving someone else's life, but you're taking someone's life to give life to someone else. And that's not ethical. That's wrong. You know, and I think for, you know, I, I mean, I hope enough people listening to this are, are scared enough to realize you've got to deal with these issues. So if you are currently an organ donor, you might want to go to Life Issues, uh, you know, Institute, their website and look, research this. Maybe you want to rescind being an organ donor. And if you don't have an advocate, oh, for goodness sakes, you've got to find someone just doesn't know your wishes, but can stand strong against a medical community that sometimes they're, they're just very happy to let you move on, free up the bed and have someone else come in. So, um, you know, Brad, um, you said that there might be this app, but in the meanwhile, <laughs> you know, what would you say are some steps people should do um, in trying to push back against this? Well, you've outlined the critical steps to do, and this app is going to literally be available within weeks. So it won't be, um, it maybe two months, we'll be seeing it really pushed and advertised out there. And my wife and I are going to subscribe to the service as soon as it's available. But, you know, one thing I'd like to mention is I thought this, and most Americans think this, that when you're an organ donor and your death is imminent, the family comes in, says goodbyes, your heart stops beating, they wheel you to another room and harvest the organs. Well, that's not the case at all. And as we've talked about, your organs need to be, um, uh, be um, pumping and enjoying that natural circulation that God provides for them to be successful. Wow. This is just, you know, so eye-opening, Brad. Um, I just hope more people can find an advocate for them to stand strong against, unfortunately, a medical community that, you know, the Hippocratic Oath that used to be do no harm, I think they've forgotten that, that original oath of do no harm. And now it's all about judging this quality of life. And um, it, it's so, so sad. And like I said, I, I directly connected to abortion because once you start down the slippery slope of saying an unborn child's life is, has no value, it's even easier to take an elderly person or a person who's in a coma uh, and also say, well, they're, they're going to die anyway. So let's, let's, you know, make them uh, check out sooner. And the final thing I'd like to just go back to is hospice. And I have a lot of experience with that one too, unfortunately. Um, and just quickly, we need to warn people about hospice in a way of, like you just said, morphine and, and the overuse of morphine. Morphine is wonderful. And I, I've administered morphine to family members, but brothers and sisters, um, there's a very specific way of doing it but you don't overdose them and cause death sooner than, uh, like I said, when the, the Lord calls you home, that's when you're supposed to go. So 
I'll tell you, Brad, this has been an eye-opening uh, interview. I want to thank you for joining me. And I want everyone to go to your website, lifeissues.org. That's lifeissues.org and be informed. So thanks, Brad. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. Well, brothers and sisters, I hope we gave you enough food for thought. And do go to Brad's website, lifeissues.org, because the life you save might be your own. Thanks for joining us today. God bless. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.